Welcome to the Horses Equine Innovators podcast, sponsored by Zoetis Animal Health. I'm your host today, Stephanie Church, Editor-in-Chief of The Horse. Every day, researchers at universities and other institutions around the world are investigating new ways to care for and understand our horses and the horse industry. In this podcast series, we talk to those innovators to learn more about their work. This podcast is brought to you by Zoetis. Protect the one you love from equine influenza and herpes virus with protection you can trust with Fluvac Innovator from Zoetis. Give love a shot by talking to your veterinarian today to schedule a vaccination appointment to protect your horse from these diseases. Today, we will be discussing African horse sickness, a disease the horse industry has been hearing a lot about in 2020 because of a deadly outbreak in Thailand. By early May, 500 horses had died of the disease and officials were still locking down the situation. We have as our guest today, Dr. Peter Timoney, a professor and Frederick Van Lennep Chair in Equine Veterinary Science at the University of Kentucky's Gluck Equine Research Center here in Lexington. Dr. Timoney received an MVB in Veterinary Medicine from the National University of Ireland an MS in Virology from the University of Illinois, a PhD from the University of Dublin, and a fellowship from the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in London. He has worked at the Veterinary Research Laboratory in Dublin, Cornell University, and the Irish Equine Center, and he has specialized in infectious diseases of the horse since 1972, with a research emphasis on equine viral arteritis, contagious equine metritis, and equine herpes viruses. He is a World Organization for Animal Health designated international specialist on equine viral arteritis. He is also past president of the World Equine Veterinary Association, and he was inducted into the University of Kentucky Equine Research Hall of Fame in 2009. Welcome, Dr. Timoney. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. So you and I have talked a lot about equine diseases over the years as we've covered them for the horse, particularly diseases that affect or could affect the United States horse population and our ability to ship horses around the world. So that is 38 years of focus on equine infectious diseases. So to what do you attribute your interest in these diseases and how did that evolve into an interest in African horse sickness? Um. I would go back to the 1960s, uh, ever since I graduated from vet, vet school, veterinary school in Dublin in Ireland. Um, and even then I had a very strong interest in infectious diseases, especially those caused by viruses. Um, my interest in equine infectious diseases happened purely by chance. Um, 1972, um, a number of outbreaks of equine herpes virus type 1 neurologic disease occurred in a number of thoroughbred breeding farms in the south of Ireland. Um, this was at a time when I was on staff at the Veterinary Research Laboratory outside of Dublin. Um, the industry was extremely concerned and prevailed on the then Department of Agriculture and the chief veterinary officer to establish an equine diseases section at the veterinary research laboratory and to appoint somebody to run it. I happened to be uh, fortunate to be selected and uh, assumed that position. Mm -hmm. um, so hence my interest not just in infectious diseases but with specific orientation on those affecting um, the equine species arose. So I have been specialized, or I have specialized in equine infectious diseases since basically 1973, when I first came to the United States to, to learn much more about um, those particular diseases starting here in Lexington in Kentucky and going elsewhere in both the United States and also in Canada to become more experienced, more proficient and knowledgeable of what those diseases were and how to diagnose them, how to treat them and how to prevent and control them. Mm -hmm. 
So you have described to me in the past African horse sickness as the worst disease of horses or even the horse plague. Why is it so terrible? Could you tell me about the virus that causes it and how it spread? Um, well, the reason I call it the worst disease that could possibly affect horses is that at this juncture, it is the only disease that has the potential to cause devastating losses in naive populations of horses, regardless of where they are. In many respects, the impact of African horse sickness can be likened to a disease that's now eradicated worldwide. But uh, when it existed, it was called rinderpest or cattle plague. And the outcome of infection of naive cattle with that particular virus was absolutely devastating. It would decimate populations, uh, uh, giving uh, a morbidity and mortality rate of upwards of 100%. In this instance, we're dealing with a different disease. Um, it's a norbivirus, but it too has the ability in if it's introduced into naive populations of horses to result in losses, in terms of losses, I'm talking about fatalities, anything from uh, 80 to 100%. So there's no other disease that has that potential, fortunately, that we have to deal with today. Hmm. Thank you. So just for the benefit of our listeners, could you describe what it means to be a naive animal? A naive animal is, or a naive person, is an individual that has never previously been exposed to an infectious agent or been vaccinated against that agent. Mm -hmm. You can equate naivety with complete susceptibility to that particular agent. Okay, I see. Thank you. So what are some of the clinical signs that horses infected with African horse sickness display? Um, the virus itself uh, is a very interesting virus. It's a norbivirus, it's a ribonucleic acid virus, an RNA virus uh, belonging to, to the orbivirus group um, that has other uh, uh, members that are extremely important, especially for ruminant populations such as blue tongue and episodic hemorrhagic disease, disease um, in both uh, domesticated and wildlife ruminant populations. Um, African horse sickness, um, the virus itself, there are nine known serotypes of the virus that are antigenically distinct from one another. But in fact, there is some level of cross-reactivity between serotypes one and two, three and seven, five and eight, and six and nine. But one must recognize that in fact, there are nine serotypes. And if you're in a country where this disease is endemic, you may have to vaccinate against all nine serotypes to affect protection against the disease. Um, it's an infectious disease, but it's not a contagious disease like equine herpes type 1 or many, many other diseases, equine viral arteritis, for example. But this is a non-contagious infectious disease that is vector-borne and it's transmitted by species of midges or generic classification of midges is, they're called Coulocoides species. And um, they, uh, the disease itself occurs um, perennially in many sub-Saharan countries, especially in South Africa. So it's not something that occurs sporadically one year and not another. It occurs every year, but its occurrence is both seasonal and episodic. Seasonal in that it tends to occur during the late summer and fall in those countries. And um, major events that uh, associated with this disease um, tend to be precipitated by periods of drought followed by heavy rains. 
And that brings into consideration the fact that, in fact, there is a link between major episodics of this disease and El Nino years. In other words, climate change and global warming can certainly influence the epidemiology and the occurrence of this disease, like many other vector-borne diseases. You asked me about the clinical forms of this disease. There are considered four forms of this disease. Um, some of them are very distinct and others less so. There's a subacute or cardiac form. There's an acute or pulmonary form. form. There's a mixed form involving uh, both forms of the disease, cardiac and pulmonary. And then there is a mild form of the disease or African horse sickness fever. So they're the four um, forms, clinical forms of the disease. Um, the disease itself, the cardiac form, results in uh, complete uh, interference with the circulation and the circulatory system in the body of the horse. It's associated with, obviously, fever uh, that can be very, very high, um, swelling of not just the facial tissues, but the swelling can extend on the neck, the ventral areas or dependent areas of the body, the brisket, the shoulders, and the mortality rate from that form of the disease can be equal to or even in excess of 50%. In the case of the pulmonary or acute form of the disease, as its name would suggest, it affects primarily the respiratory system. Um, affected animals obviously exhibit fever, dyspnea, or difficulty in breathing, coughing, um, nasal discharges that's frequently serosanguineous, bloody and frothy, uh, exudate coming out of the nostrils of the animals, and um, it also is associated with extreme inflammation of the conjunctivae of the eyes and the orbit and the uh, that's very characteristic as well um it's nearly always fatal in affected animals then you have the mixed form that is a combination of both cardiac and uh, pulmonary forms of the disease and obviously the symptomatology associated with that mirrors or reflects what I've just described for both cardiac and pulmonary forms of disease. And it has um, an appropriate uh, case fatality rate as well, sometimes as high as 85 to 90%. Mm. Um, so that basically in a nutshell is yeah. the cause of the ages of the virus. Um, it is, for, uh, for those that are interested, it is considered a tier three disease by the National Bio and Agro-Defense Facility in Kansas. So it is okay. regarded because of its impact as mm. an extremely important disease of livestock. Indeed, and it sounds like a very visual disease and one that the horse suffers and then the, the owner suffers watching too so um absolutely absolutely it's 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 very very uh, anguishing for owners of affected animals to watch their animal affected fortunately um many instances um the course of the disease is very rapid it can be a matter of hours or one or two days in the case of the pulmonary form of the disease Okay, wow, goodness. Well, I hope to never see it. Um, so let's go ahead and move on to which horses are affected. So I understand that some horses are affected more severely, that horses actually are affected more severely than other equids, um, such as um, donkeys or mules or um, zebra. Could you tell me a little bit about that, please? And do we know why? Um, yes. I can just um, give you some information about that, but I'm not necessarily 
I don't feel informed enough to be able to say exactly what the basis of the difference in susceptibility or gradient in susceptibility is. But it's not unique to African horse sickness. We see the same uh, variation amongst equid species to different other agents, both virus, viruses as well as bacteria. But in the case of African horse sickness, the morbidity, mortality rates vary with the species of equid that we're talking about. In the case of horses, as I've already indicated, it can the case fatality rate uh, in clinically affected animals can range from 50 to 100 percent. In the case of mules, it's about 50 percent. As you know, they're a cross between horses and donkeys. In the case of uh, European donkeys, um, the um, fatality rate is much less. It's around 10 percent. And then in the African donkey that would have originated orig would have originated from the European donkey centuries ago, um, and also in zebra, this disease is almost asymptomatic, and there's zero case fatality rate. Most you can see might be a, a slight febrile reaction, and in the case of both the African donkey and the zebra, just some swelling above the orbit. In other words, supraorbital edema. And that would be the extent of it. The animals do not display any other clinical signs and obviously recover from the infection without a problem. In countries that have populations of zebras, donkeys, working equids and performance horses, how does the virus spread between the groups? And for the benefit of our listeners, working equids are the horses, donkeys, and mules that are used for things like agriculture, transporting goods and people, tourism, and other purposes. A very good question. I think you have to go back to the fact that this is principally a vector-borne disease you have in the countries in which it occurs, the climate is such that yes, um, there may be seasonal ebbs and flows in terms of vector, vector populations, but you will get vector activity throughout the year because it never gets cold enough uh, in many of these countries at uh, close to sea level or somewhat above that point that uh, will result in killing off of the um, vectors themselves. Similarly, in the US, um, if we've got a vector-borne disease such as any of the equine encephalomyelitis, eastern equine encephalitis, West Nile encephalitis, um, they are mosquito-borne and when we're in, as we are indeed already in the uh, sleeping sickness or encephalitis season, um, we're hoping for the first killing frost. And the word killing is not in relation to vegetation. It basically, it gets so cold that uh, the vectors themselves, the mosquitoes cannot live and they die off. And so once they die off, there is no means of vectoring the particular disease in question. In the case of African horse sickness, in the countries in which it occurs, I mentioned that they're sub-Saharan countries. That's where they, the reservoirs exist and that's where the disease occurs, both seasonally and given certain circumstances such as El Nino years, um, episodically. So there you're dealing with subtropical or tropical countries. You're not dealing with uh, countries where you get a very, very cold winter, extended winter, where the vector population is basically going to be killed off. So in the likes of Ethiopia, where you've got a mixed working equid population involving um, donkeys, they would almost certainly be African donkeys, not European donkeys, uh, zebras, uh, horses and ponies as beasts of burden, so to speak. I wouldn't say 
zebra would be used because they're, they're too rambunctious. They're, they they're just would be very difficult to harness and to basically uh, be of any utility, utilitarian use. Um, I think the vectors are always around. The, disease, the virus is present in those countries. It's endemic. And so um, the animals are exposed to it. But let's be honest that those countries also vaccinate against African horse sickness with a view to stemming the disease and also the losses, the mortality that can result from infection with the virus. So it's uh, most of those countries in, along the eastern seaboard of the African continent do in fact vaccinate where they have the necessary financial resources against this particular disease. They, some of them produce their own vaccines and we can discuss that later in the presentation. And I think it's interesting that, you know, the, the midges, the coelacoides really don't know the difference between a zebra and a, and a horse no. and a donkey. And they'll fly right over the wall into the riding school, you know. Um, okay, so how do you test for African horse sickness? Diagnosis of African horse sickness is based two, two ways. Well, number one, I think and the clinical signs of a typically affected horse with this disease are so dramatic, so unique, that you can reach a presumptive diagnosis even on clinical grounds. But that presumptive clinical diagnosis must, must be confirmed by taking appropriate specimens for laboratory confirmation of that diagnosis. Um, the laboratory tests in question would be in the case of a, the death or loss of an animal or an animal that has had to be euthanized for humane reasons because of, of the nature of the disease, uh, harvesting of whole blood, spleen, lung, lymph nodes, they would be very productive sources of virus. And obviously, if you're dealing with an animal that you believe may have been exposed, but is still alive, you could take a clotted blood sample and you could test that sample for the presence of antibodies to African horse sickness virus. And the tests that are used most frequently uh, is the real-time polymerase chain reaction assay because of the speed with which the test can provide you with a result. Um, but in some cases and in some countries, they will also carry out attempted virus isolation in cell culture because they will want to uh, identify the virus and perhaps do whole genome sequencing of it. But the real-time PCR test is the go-to test under most circumstances because what you need to do if there is a suspicion of this disease based on clinical signs is to confirm that, that um, um, presumptive diagnosis extremely quickly, extremely rapidly because the measures that have to be implemented if it is a case of African horse sickness must be implemented as quickly as ever possible, especially with respect to lockdown of the affected premises and imposition of um, restrictions on uh, movement of equids uh, um, over a significant radius, either 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers, as the case might be. So mm. it's critically important that a, a diagnosis is arrived at by a laboratory, a laboratory that has the capability to do such a diagnosis and also to identify if it is African horse sickness, which particular serotype of the virus has been responsible for the event. Thank you. So where are these testing centers found or these laboratories found that can conduct this test? Um, they're not available in every diagnostic lab. Mm -hmm. Most countries, but there are many countries where this does not exist. Um, 
have to rely upon the World Organization for Animal Health's um, designated laboratories to send samples to. The one that's frequently used is the Animal Disease Research Institute at Purbright in Surrey in the United Kingdom. We have the capability, obviously, here in this country to diagnose um, this disease at the US Department of Agriculture's National Veterinary Services Lab and also uh, at the um, facility on Plum Island. Okay. Um, not every lab has the reagents to do this testing and uh, so uh, you don't, you certainly want to limit um, availability of live virus and just restrict it to labs that are competent to carry out the testing and also are highly secure in terms of avoidance of escape of virus. Does that occur? It has occurred. It has occurred even at facilities such as exist at Perbright. So, you know, um, there's always the element of human error that you have to factor in. Indeed. Are there any effective treatments for African horse sickness? No, there are no specific antiviral treatments. And if you have horses that are affected, the value, the, the virus is circulating in their bloodstream. They are viremic. And as long as they're viremic, they act as a source of the virus if they're fed upon by um, suitable species or appropriate species of coulacoides. And so if you want to restrict on a premises that is an index premises of this disease, further spread of the virus, that unfortunate affected equine should be euthanized as quickly as possible. Wow. I can see how this is impacted, you know, looking at the Thailand outbreak, why it is so upsetting for them and um, concerning. So you and I both attended the first Havemeyer International Workshop on Infectious Diseases of Working Donkeys and Horses way back in 2013 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. When we were there, veterinarians discussed African horse sickness, among many other diseases. We even watched vaccines against the illness being made in a facility in Deborah Zaid. What types of vaccines do veterinarians use to prevent African horse sickness? Um, there are a number of vaccines available. Um, some of them are modified live where the actual virus itself has been somewhat attenuated by passage, serial passage in cell culture uh, and used. And those are the vaccines that historically within up to, in fact, up to the present have been used every year in the Republic of South Africa and in certain other countries. They were used in 1987 when this disease was inadvertently introduced into the Iberian Peninsula and spread both within Spain and then from Spain to Portugal and then unfortunately across the Straits of Gibraltar into Morocco. And so that sequence of events spanned four years between 1987 before it was eventually eradicated from both the Iberian Peninsula and Morocco in 1990. And so, and the modified live vaccine was used then. It's been used in other countries. It's been used currently in Thailand because they have no means of producing the vaccine themselves. And uh, the, the event, the African horse sickness event in South Africa, in uh, Thailand, pardon me, um, has been shown to be caused by serotype 1 virus. There was no monovalent vaccine generated against or with serotype 1, uh, serotype African horse sickness virus. And rather than wait for one to be produced in South Africa, they went ahead and procured um, 
plurivalent vaccine against all serotypes of the virus uh, to ensure that as quickly as possible, they were protecting susceptible or naive horses in the neighborhood and within a specific distance of any of the premises where the disease was confirmed. Okay. Additional to the modified live, and it has served its purpose. It certainly controlled the disease in South Africa over um, many, many, many decades. Um, there is an issue. Orbi viruses have the ability to uh, uh, reassociate. In other words, they can take a chunk of genetic material from another virus belonging to the, of the same type but different and substitute that for a corresponding uh, chunk of genetic material hmm. in the particular virus in question. And that, in fact, has occurred with and only recognized within the last few years in South Africa, where they noticed that some of the AHS, the African horse sickness affected horses, were much more mildly affected than would have been anticipated had they been infected with the natural virus. Hmm. What they discovered was that um, some of the vaccinated horses, since it's a modified live vaccine, will circulate that virus, that vaccine strain, for a period of time. And once they did, they were also exposed to circulating field strains or a field strain of the virus. And the horse itself, within the horse, you got genetic reassortment. And that was confirmed. And so that's been going on for quite a while. So you could say to yourself, yes, the modified live vaccine is effective in protecting the vast majority of equids against this disease, but there is a kicker. It's hmm. not this because of what I described. It has safety problems. Okay. The alternative is to use an inactivated or kill vaccine. And the vaccines that are used elsewhere in uh, most other um, countries, both sub-Saharan countries uh, in which African horse sickness occurs, tend to use inactivated rather than modified live vaccines. And the vaccines that you and I were witness to their production and the plant at Zebrzaid were in fact inactivated. Uh, it was an inactivated product. Um, mm -hmm. And they produce millions of doses, and those doses are used both within the country, Ethiopia, but probably also in adjacent countries, such as um, on the eastern seaboard, perhaps in Somalia, maybe, but because of the civil uh, situation there, um, that might be very difficult, perhaps in Eritrea, perhaps in Kenya as well. Mm -hmm. And I do know that another uh, inactivated vaccine has been produced at the Center, uh, Central Vent Research Laboratory in um, Dubai. And that has been used experimentally in Kenya and the one vaccine can protect against all nine serotypes. But how effective it is, we really don't know at this stage because classically inactivated vaccines do not confer the same level of protective immunity as modified live vaccines. But they are safer because of what I mentioned unless you're dealing with a very, very unique, attenuated, modified live uh, virus. As I understand it, vets have not seen African horse sickness outside of sub-Saharan Africa, except for a few times. You mentioned the outbreak in Spain that uh, passed on to Portugal and Morocco in the 80s, and then we've seen the recent outbreak in Thailand. To help our listeners understand how an outbreak unfolds in a horse population that has never been exposed to the virus before. Could you describe the Spanish outbreak in 87? Like, how did it arrive? How did they try to control it? 
and um, tell me about the the casualties. Sure. I think if I may just uh, qualify what you've stated because I think it is important to, for people to realize that once this virus gets out of the African continent, there have been instances of where it has spread and spread very widely. And in those instances, I'm afraid that um, spread has been primarily uh, through infected vectors and movement of infected horses. For example, there was a massive episodic that spread between 1959 and 1963, where the virus escaped from Africa, perhaps into the across the Horn of Africa, into the Yemen and Saudi Arabia, and went north as far as Turkey and Iran and as far east as India. So it kept basically, uh, it survived and continued to cause major, major losses during that time. That's been the single most significant incursion of this disease outside the African continent that we have records for. And in 1966, it occurred in Spain, not sure exactly what, how it was introduced there. Um, in 1987, I've already mentioned it occurred in Spain, um, spread to Portugal and then to Morocco, and then in 1997, uh, again, it, it occurred in the Yemen, and in 1999, interestingly enough, um, it occurred in the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa. And you might say, how in heaven's name did it reach there? Yeah. I, um, I think coming back to the main thrust of your question, if we look at introduction of this disease into two countries, the first was Spain in 1987 and the second was Thailand in 2020. I think there is there was confirmatory evidence that its introduction into Spain was through the importation of 10 zebra from Namibia in southern Africa. That group of 10 was split into two subgroups, a group of five that went into a wildlife safari park outside of Madrid, and the others went into um, some equivalent facility close to Barcelona. That the group of five that uh, ended up in the wildlife park outside of Madrid almost certainly had one or more zebra that were viremic. And whilst they were there, there must have been a competent species of Kulakoides that fed upon one or more animals, um, then the mosquitoes themselves, the virus underwent uh, its own replication cycle in the, uh, not mosquitoes, in the Kulakoides or midges, and then they fed on, on in horses in the immediate region, and those horses developed classical African horse sickness. Initially, it was imagined that these animals had been poisoned and the problem was a toxicological problem. It wasn't. It was an infectious diseases problem. Fortunately, the five zebra that ended up outside of Barcelona, none of them, or at least, were responsible for a disparate or a separate focus of this disease. So that case, that was almost cut and dried. That was the source, it was imported zebra. And what I haven't mentioned to this point is that the period of viremia in the zebra can be much, much longer than it can be in domestic horses. It can, be as, it can be as long as 40 days or even somewhat longer than 40 days. So you can see the risk. In relation to the most recent 
incursion of this disease into Thailand. Um, let's just say that circumstantial evidence would indicate that there was an importation of zebra and giraffes into that country in late January and they ended up in a zoo, at least some did, geographically close to the index mm. premises on which African horse sickness was discovered on the 24th of February. Oh, wow. um, there's evidence to suggest that those zebra were imported at a time of the year when this disease was active in the country of origin, and I would rather not say what that country of origin is. Okay. Um, but against the best advices that was given, that shipment took place and unfortunately had disastrous consequences for the equine industry in Thailand which has been estimated the number of horses in Thailand, rough guess about 7,000. And so it caused uh, a significant loss within that population that we're aware of. And so again, even though the evidence is circumstantial, the authorities in Thailand now recognize that they need to be far more vigilant and far more attentive to the potential risks that importation of zebra represent into that country. And perhaps importation of zebra that are imported into that country en route to other Asiatic countries. Mm, indeed. We must, we must accept in today's world that trade in wildlife species internationally is big business. Yes. There's a huge amount of money involved. And so as long as that exists, we're going to continue to see importations, legal and illegal, continuing to take place. And if those importations involve, in this case, a reservoir of African horse sickness virus, viz, zebra, the potential is that you're going to get dissemination of that virus into naive populations in the countries into which those zebra are introduced. Indeed. So is that outbreak ongoing or have they wrapped it up? At the present time, um, of the seven provinces in which there were infected premises reported, Five of those premises, they claim the disease has been resolved, which leaves one with two premises in which one presumes the virus is still circulating or there's tangible evidence of disease still occurring. But the follow-up reports that have been submitted to the OIE, and we're now on follow-up report from the Thai authorities number 11, number 9, 10, and 11 make no reference to any additional outbreaks. Whether that's the case or not, I'm not certain. Earlier you mentioned some quarantines and travel restrictions made in the Thai outbreak. On thehorse.com we reported that officials were vaccinating horses testing negative for African horse sickness and that owners within a 100 kilometer radius of a disease site had to keep their horses under mosquito netting until they were vaccinated and until 28 days after vaccination. So it sounds like that situation is wrapping up, so that would suggest these measures are fairly effective. What are some other measures veterinarians and horse owners can use for mitigating risk? The first thing is, and I've already mentioned it, is to impose standstill orders on movement of equids. Um, outside of a particular radius. And that radius is, it can be 100 kilometers. Initially, it was stated to be 50 kilometers, which uh, you say, does that represent the maximal flight path of infected midges? Um, it depends, it depends on the climate. These are very small uh, insect vectors 
as you're well aware, um, they can be blown on winds coming from a particular direction and they can travel significantly longer than would normally be the case. We don't know what those climatic factors were though in the case of the outbreak in Thailand. I think you have to accept that quarantining of affected animals and euthanasia of affected animals is would be in order for the reasons that you want to restrict um, vectors feeding on them, becoming infected in turn, and serving as to further spread the virus to other naive animals that could be cohorts to the affected or in the immediate area. At this stage, between five and 6,000 horses, close to 6,000 horses have been vaccinated since vaccination was instituted on the 19th and 20th of April. So clearly um, they've tried to establish um, initially vaccination within that 50 or 100 kilometer radius. That's the most important thing. And then beyond that, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that the Thai authorities did or implemented what was implemented in Spain in 1987, where they said, okay, we've got to basically prevent this disease spreading further outside of where it is at present. And so they established a cordon sanitaire and that is, they ring vaccinate vaccinate all susceptible equids uh, within that ring with a view to if the virus spreads out, then it meets an already protected immunized population and won't go any further. That is exactly what happened in 1971 into 72 when Venezuelan equine encephalomyelitis spread north that epidemic, epizootic, it affected both humans and horses spread up from Colombia and Venezuela in through Central America, through Mexico, and was stopped in Brown County in Southeast Texas. Why? Because a cordon sanitaire was established and vaccine, the vaccine was a modified live vaccine, TC83, was used to vaccinate horses, ring vaccinate around where this virus was moving towards to try and prevent it spreading further northwards. So that policy still applies where it's implemented, but I'm not sure that it was implemented necessarily in relation to the current uh, event in Thailand. So here in Kentucky, we live about 8,700 miles from Thailand, and we're actually closer to countries where African horse sickness is endemic, such as Ethiopia, Kenya, and South Africa. But still, that seems like it's pretty far away, Dr. Timoney. Uh, why should we as horse owners in the States and other unaffected countries be concerned about this disease? And how could it be introduced here? I think we have to be concerned and continue to be concerned specifically because we're living in an era of es continued escalation in relation to international movement of horses for performance competition, performance events, racing, um, equitation uh, events, Worldwide, horses travel more than any other species except human beings. Inherent in that movement, there is the risk of disease transfer from the country of origin of a horse or group of horses to the country in which those horses are introduced. That risk is potentiated if the period that the horses spend in the importing country is extended if not permanent, it's much, much less if you're dealing with temporary importation less than 90 days. However, additional to that, we have trade in wildlife species, as I've already indicated, both legal and illegal. And the question is, to what extent 
are these species of equids other than horses monitored, tested prior to the time they're exported from the country of origin and arrive actually in the country of destination? And what procedures and testing procedures are implemented with respect to making sure that they go into post-arrival quarantine for a requisite period of time and are confirmed negative for this virus. This is going to become a continuing issue for us to have to deal with. Why? Because we're seeing continued proliferation in the number of wildlife parks, safari parks, people like to import exotic species of animals and have them on display or for their own personal pleasure. And we have it in this country as we have in other countries. We need to be mindful of what those imported animals may bring with them, not just themselves, but the agents that they can carry or could be acutely infected with. So that is what we need first and foremost is continued awareness amongst those in the horse industry. Everybody, owners, breeders, and so on, of the existence of African horse sickness. And that whereas it could be in Southern Africa today, it could be in the United States tomorrow. That is a sensational statement, but it could potentially happen. Let me give you an example. In 1998, there were significant problems with West Nile virus in domesticated geese populations in Israel that were kept for production of pate de foie gras. Mm -hmm. In August of 1999, one year later, seven people developed neurologic disease in New York City. They didn't know what it was initially. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, following similar reports of deaths in birds, both um, domestic birds and wildlife birds in the Bronx Zoo. The pathologist, Dr. Tracy McDamara, suspected that it could be a vector-borne disease. Mm -hmm. She rang the bell. Initially, what was happening in New York City was thought to be, could it be St. Louis encephalitis? It wasn't. It was West Nile. How did it get from Israel in 1998 to New York City in 1999? And most people, even when it was recognized and identified, felt that the winters were so severe in the Northeast that the mosquito population could not persist and that the virus would die out. Mm -hmm. It took three years for 48 of the 50 states to be infected with West Nile virus. Again, another vector-borne disease, this instance, mosquito transmitted. We could have a similar situation with another vector-borne disease, African horse sickness. Unfortunately, if African horse sickness occurs, the attendant morbidity rate, mortality rate is so devastating that basically it would decimate populations of naive horses in the country if it got into and infected and was transmitted by competent species of coulocoides. And I would mention that we do have species of coulocoides, some of them widespread in the United States, that have been shown to be competent to vector this and to transmit this particular virus. So we cannot afford to be complacent we must continue to be vigilant. We must be preactive. We must ensure that every, every precaution is taken if, in fact, we're importing animals from countries in the world that are known to be endemic for this disease or where we have a suspicion that, in fact, the disease could have occurred or be occurring in those countries and where there is lack of transparency by the authorities in those countries to 
divulge or admit what's happening. And unfortunately, we could be the recipient of this virus and unfortunately experience the huge impact on our ability to trade. Because once this disease occurs in a country that in which it has never occurred previously, there is the imposition by the OIE and by all countries that trade with this, with this country, for example, that they will not allow the importation of horses from the United States for a minimum of two years, assuming wow. that the country remains free of the disease within that two-year period. That could be devastating for our horse industry economy. It is because, as you're well aware, we export more live horses and the value of our export, horse exports, exceeds that of any other live species being exported by the United States mm -hmm. and has done so for a significant number of years. Well, you had mentioned that there was a requisite time period for horses to remain in quarantine when they do come from countries affected by, um, endemically affected by African horse sickness. What is that time period? And what are we, what are some other things we are already doing here in the United States to protect our horse population from African horse sickness? Um, first of all, to address the first part of your question, um, the United States, will import horses or equids from African horse sickness affected countries, but they will have to be quarantined for a period of, or go into quarantine for 60 days post arrival. So it's a 60 day post arrival quarantine period in vector proof accommodation. There is only one such facility that accepts such animals and that's the USDA uh, operated facility in Newburgh in Upper New York State. Um, in terms of being proactive, I've mentioned awareness, I've mentioned familiarity with this disease within equine stakeholders, among stakeholders, there's no excuses. They don't have to know the detail, the chapter and verse, but they need to know some of the principal features of this disease and the huge risks associated with it were it to be introduced. So awareness, education, and also don't forget that the first responders, if in fact it was to be introduced and to escape from an animal that had already passed through post-arrival quarantine, which would not happen if the quarantine period continues as 60 days, would in fact be the owner or the veterinarian that will call, be called upon to, to uh, look at a sick animal that is displaying clinical signs that puzzle the owner and wants that animal treated. In other words, the responsibility as a first responder lies with members of this industry and also with the veterinary profession that services that industry. So awareness of the disease, vigilance in terms of surveillance, always assume that what you're looking at may not necessarily be what you think it is, that you must think of other differential diagnoses and don't ever overlook African horse sickness in, amongst that differential list. Um, it obviously is appropriate, strict, enforcement of quarantine and movement controls if in fact you're uncertain otherwise. Um, horses that if in fact the disease were to occur would have to be stabled, kept indoors between uh, from dusk to dawn at a minimum and kept in vector-proof accommodation using netting, using um, insect repellents on the horses uh, and also using um, or trying to eliminate or minimize um, the breeding of coelacoides species. So elimination of breeding sites, use of larvicides in sites that you can eliminate and also to use, as I say, 
uh, insecticides and insect repellents on horses themselves. If indeed the disease was to be introduced, clearly there would have to be a need to consider to introduce vaccine and to vaccinate, as I've already indicated, um, in other countries. And that's where the innovators come in. You know, I see you as an innovator in the equine infectious disease world. So, you know, you've described the worst case scenario. If AHS were to arrive, um, how would innovators need to respond? Would there be, would there need to be a production of a vaccine here in the United States? Would we need to rely on South Africa or another country? Or how would you see that playing out? Um, Optimally, under the circumstances, um, we would like to have our, develop our own vaccine, but there may not be time. Mm -hmm. And in situations like that, the, the OIE has recognized where there are repositories of vaccine, but in the case of African horse sickness, um, there may not be sufficient doses because we have a huge equid population in the US. And I'm not saying that every equid is going to be vaccinated. All I'm saying is to be able to procure vaccine in short order to address an event that's ongoing, it will take some time to procure that vaccine and to vaccinate the animals and to keep them um, protected against vector activity and feeding for a period until they develop sufficient protective immunity. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the challenge we're faced with. We're faced with exactly the same challenge, but not with the vector-borne disease, with the gut of foot and mouth disease. Mm -hmm. Do we produce the vaccine in this country or not? There are risks. There are risks associated with production of these vaccines because, as I've already indicated, um, the agents themselves can be highly contagious. In the case of foot and mouth disease, in the case of African horse sickness virus, it is not contagious. It is an infection, mm -hmm. an infectious disease, but it's vector-borne, and that presents its own problems for us, as we well know. Well, you have been exceptionally thorough today, and I really do appreciate you telling me all about this disease and what it could mean for us if we were to ever get it. Hopefully we won't. Um, is there anything else we need to make sure we cover today in our discussion about African horse sickness? No, except I would again re-emphasize there is no room for complacency at any level with regard to this disease. We have to keep our guard up. We have uh, the USDA APHIS Veterinary Services has restrictions in place. They've worked over the years. Why change a winning streak? That's my feeling. I think we should continue to implement them, but we must also consider the potential for illegal introduction of non-horse species or even horses from other countries that are adjacent to this country and have land boundaries to it or with it. Um, we must, must be always on our guard to make sure that if this disease or other diseases are introduced, we are detecting them. We're looking for them. In other words, there's surveillance, ongoing surveillance. We are apprised of what to look for, what to be aware of. And if we, have a suspicion that we're dealing with African horse sickness, we need to uh, report that directly to the federal government uh, as a matter of utmost urgency, as well as to the state animal health officials and the state veterinarian in the affected and uh, in the state in which an affected premises is located. So again, it's a case of no room for complacency, continued, um, education, increased awareness of this disease, how it can spread, how it can be introduced, surveillance, it's going to have to be continuous. We can't assume it's a vast country. We have a huge population. We have many other conditions that perhaps could simulate African horse sickness, mm -hmm. but not in its most overt form. 
So with that, I think you have the best. But additional to that, we must also, somebody needs to keep an eye on where this virus is, where it's occurring, are those countries being forthcoming, transparent in reporting this disease to the OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health or not. In other words, we must be prepared. We must be prepared. And I'm not saying it's a doomsday situation. What I am saying is that we have no grounds for being complacent or indifferent to the potential risk of introducing this and many other diseases into a population because the impact is so huge or would be so huge. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Timoney, for your time and your excellent insight on this very important subject. I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast and answering these questions. You're most welcome. I also want to thank our sponsor, Zoetis. For more from the horse, visit thehorse.com, sign up for our newsletters, or look for Ask the Horse Live wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please join us next time as we explore the horse industry equine innovators.